This is part two of The Legacies of Francoism with Sebastian Faber. Turning now to some of these suggestions that have been made based on all these criticisms of the current democratic system that, that we mentioned previously, what critics argue is that Spain really needs a second transition to be able to rid the country of those Francoist elements. So what are some of these ideas about what a second transition might actually look like? There, I don't think there's a real blueprint anywhere for that. And I have to admit that even in, when I talk about the second transition, I talk less about a very specific process than uh, about the notion that the first transition has left a lot of things undone or, or, or at, at this point requires a lot of um, additional changes or, or re rethinking some of the, some of the uh, uh, some of the initial reforms that were put in place in the 1970s. But some elements that are associated with the idea of the second transition include everything from democratic renewal, so changing the ways in which political parties function, changing the ways in which people enter political parties, in instituting different forms of democratic participation beyond just elections, rethinking Spain's semi-federal set up um, uh, with these, which combines on the one hand, a high level of decentralization through the autonomous communities of which there are 17, mm -hmm. but at the same time, a high level of centralization still that is manifested in, in economic distribution of, of just where in the country money lives and is made, um, services, uh, medical services, bank services, public transportation services. If you look at that level, it's Spain is still highly, highly centralized, all the way to perhaps breaking up Spain into several different states, right? Or mm -hmm. um, changing the way in which elections are held. And so there's a whole series of ideas associated with, this, with the second transition that do, in fact, also include um, finally coming to judicial terms with the Franco dictatorship and the Civil War. So uh, the ideas that have been floated. Uh, by the by, politicians generally kind of in an unreflected kind of way, kind of in a, kind of a, in a slogany kind of way, without really much policy behind it, include the idea of a truth commission modeled on Chile, Argentina, South Africa, um, Peru, or the idea of annulling the amnesty law. So, and those two things bring us to a, a topic we haven't quite talked about yet, which is the new law. Uh, now called Law of, uh, of Democratic Memory, mm -hmm. Ley de Memoria Democrática, that has been passed, just now passed by the Spanish Parliament and is poised to be passed by the Spanish Senate, um, I think in October or so. And that law, the new law, seeks to go farther than the 2007 law. But again, according to critics, it yet again doesn't go far enough. And it doesn't go far enough in part because it fails to annul the 1977 amnesty law, which is really was the cornerstone of the transition because it shielded anybody involved with the dictatorship and anybody involved fighting against the dictatorship from judicial prosecution based on whatever they did um, between 1936 and 1977. And the, the United Nations has been calling for a an overturning or a revocation of the amnesty law for, for a number of years, because in practice, the amnesty law has been used as a full stop law. That is to say, it has been invoked by the courts 
to not even investigate crimes committed during, during, a, during a civil war and the dictatorship. So the, the new law for democratic memory that was just passed and, and will probably be passed by the Senate in October uh, does not go that far. Um, and that is a real sticking point for the memory movement, which sees that refusal to re revoke the amnesty law as a refusal to acknowledge the fact that in addition to victims, there were perpetrators. So the big advances of the 2007 law and, the, and this current law was that the victims are granted more visibility, they're granted more rights, they're, they're, they're mentioned, they're acknowledged, they get rights to some sort of reparation perhaps, at least symbolic reparation or restitution, but there is nothing at all when it comes to, to punishment or even investigation of those who would be responsible for victimizing those victims, mm -hmm. um, whether they were they're deceased or they're still alive. And that is the really the, the point of contention. And what, to the, according to the critics, what that points to is that in the end, when push comes to shove, even the Socialist Party, the, the largest party on the left, is really unwilling still to touch the foundations of post-Franco democracy. That reading is confirmed by a couple of, a couple of other symptoms. One of them is the way in which Spain is trying to rethink its law of official state secrets. Spain has a very un untransparent government compared to other, even the United States. The United States is not particularly transparent, but the United States has the Freedom of Information Act from the 70s, which does allow citizens to request information from the government, right? And, and has some pretty, has, has yielded some pretty important discoveries over the years. In Spain, access to archives and access to government secrets is very restricted by a law that stems from the, the dates from the Franco years. Currently, the, uh, a revision of that law is, is ongoing and a new law has been proposed. But even there, key moments of the dictatorship and of post-Franco democracy will be left behind lock and key or, 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 or non-accessible. Mm -hmm. And that too is seen by critics as a, as, as a confirmation of the idea that for the Socialist Party in particular, symbolic gestures toward the victims of Franco dictatorship, symbolic um, reparations when it comes to the civil war are all fine and good. But as soon as it comes to responsibilities of individuals, responsibilities of individuals even associated with the Socialist Party, like Felipe Gonzalez, the prime minister for 14 years in the 1980s and 90s, mm -hmm. when it comes to really touching the, um, the privileges of the economic and corporate elites, um, there, Bissoy is not willing to go there. So mm -hmm. the limitations to, to the second transition from the Bissoy's point of view are such that there really is no transition. It, it thinks stay, in the end, they stay the same um, and nothing goes beyond the level of, of symbolism. Um, so that's, that's really what's, what's, um, what's on the table when it comes to the second transition. Mm -hmm. The people I spoke to for the book, um, I asked about the second transition and the majority of them, and I can't blame them, basically say, look, uh, sure, yeah, a second transition would be great, including constitutional reform or, or rethinking the way that Spain organizes itself in, in, in terms of autonomous regions. But the political system 
is so dysfunctional at the moment. The left and right are so polarized. The Partido Popular on, on the right is so tied up in a kind of negationist, obstructionist attitude that nobody or nobody in their right mind would try to initiate such a major new transition right now because mm -hmm. it'd be it'd be disaster. Because if you look at, I mean, they, they can't even pass. The judicial branch is overseen by a general council of judicial power, the renewal of which is normally done through an agreement between the leading political parties who then each of them appoint different people to that council, which then governs appointments to the Supreme Court, for example. And, and it's a very powerful mm -hmm. um, institution. The current dysfunction at the political level is such that even the renewal of that general council of, political, of judicial power has not happened for years. So that this body is in function, is, is interim in a way, but it's I mean, if they can't even pull that off, how are you going to have a second transition or a constitutional reform? So people's skepticism when it comes to, to the Spanish, to the second transition is as more to do with their lack of faith in the functionality of the political system as it currently stands than anything mm -hmm. else. I think that's interesting the way you put it, um, that this new memory law is kind of sold as as being a real step forward but if we're thinking about the second transition in essence it's still kind of within that realm of the third of the first transition we might say um and i think especially because you mentioned the key thing is that it doesn't overturn that amnesty which you know is is being criticized so much today but what i always think back to is at the moment of the transition that was something that was supported by the, I think actually primarily by the left because, you know, they, because many of them were in jail, in fact, at that time. So it was, it was an amnesty for them as well. But anyway, that kind of attitude, you can see that way of thinking about it is still present in the, in the peso A and they're not kind of really willing to yeah. go beyond that. And, and, and I mean, we have to acknowledge that the, the, the current law does, imply progress with, with, with regard to the previous law. Uh -huh. And there's, there's some, so there, for example, the state now does assume the responsibility for, the, for exhuming the mass graves and not just through the system of subsidies. And it's the, uh, the new law provides for the institution of a new prosecutor, a special prosecutor for investigations related to the uh, dictatorship. And um, it pushes for changes in educational curriculum as well, even though in practice that's large chunks of that competency have been devolved to the autonomous region so that the, the power of the central government to determine curricular content is limited in mm -hmm. Spain. But there are there, there are there are real progress. Yeah. I think the most the, the, to me the, the the most tragic aspect of it is not only um, the the clear lack of willingness of the socialist party to go farther than a particular limit, it's also the continued obstructionism from the right. So the Partido Popular doesn't seem to have learned anything since 2007. They still vote against. Um, and the way they framed their voting against is, in my mind, so disingenuous and so um, cynical. Because it's true that the current law passed among other, with, with the support, among others, of political parties in the Spanish central government, 
who favor independence of regions like the Basque Country and Catalonia. And it's true that those parties, in exchange for their support, were able to have some things added to the law to sort of like um, secure their vote in favor. And it's true that the Basque pro-independence party, uh, which has a circle ties to the terrorist organization ETA that, uh, for, that waged an armed struggle for, for Basque independence. It's true that that party included in the law or had included in the law an investigative commission to look at human rights abuses in the first years of Spanish democracy when the Spanish state waged a dirty war against Basque independence fighters. But that small detail is mobilized by the right now to justify its opposition to say, this new democratic law is made by, by Basque terrorists, whatever they wrote against it. And that is politically so cheap and it's, it's, um, it's so useless to continue to refuse to engage with the need to revisit the Spanish past and rethink the way that Spain has narrated its past and rethink uh, its judicial and, and cultural consequences. That to me, that's the most tragic aspect of, of, the, uh, of the new democratic law. It will be passed, but it will not be passed with any support from the right. Now, I, I wanted to ask you about something else uh, related to that because I noticed in your book, and I think you mentioned most of the people you interviewed were on the left, you know, somewhere <laughs> along the spectrum, um, but that, you know, there were some who were actually kind of critical of this idea that the legacy of Francoism was still a, a powerful force in uh, Spanish politics and, and society today. So, you know, what were the, some of those arguments, people, you know, who were kind of on the left, but saying that, uh, you know, we shouldn't really emphasize this too much? The, the main argument, I think, of those people who are skeptical of that, what I call explanatory paradigm, right, that, that traces all of Spain's challenges back to Francoism, there's a couple of different arguments that they make about that. One is that if you look at the dysfunctions of Spain today, political corruption, the, the sort of questionable role of the judiciary, income inequality, um, uh, lack of democracy, um, they're saying if you, if you explain all that through Francoism and exclusively through Francoism, what you lose sight of is the extent to which um, those flaws or those defects or those challenges are really the consequence of global or European, what Europe-wide developments that affect other countries in very similar ways. So if you emphasize, if you, if you trace everything back to Francoism, you lose sight of the extent to which those challenges are actually shared by, by Spain and other countries. So that's one, I think, to me, pretty powerful argument that if you look at, I don't know, the, 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 the cozy relationship between corporate elites and political elites, that's a problem that undermines democracy in many countries, including the United States. If you look at, at the, the, the hollowing out of participatory democracy that happens throughout Europe, in part because of the role the European Union has played, in part, in part because of the power of multinational corporations, that, that's, an, that's an important argument, I think, to not lose sight of the extent to which Spanish challenges today, even though they might have something to do with, with Francoism, they also have to do with other things that play elsewhere as well. One consequence of that has to do with the same, similar to the discussion we had about, about the political party Vox, that you have to diagnose the problem correctly to, to, to point to a proper solution. Mm -hmm. And um, if you overemphasize 
the uniqueness of Spain's challenges based on its own unique dictatorial history, you may miss solutions that are available if you look at these problems from a broader international perspective. And um, one of the things that I try to argue in my book is that in Spain in particular, it's been very common on the left and the right to overemphasize Spain's difference with other European countries. Often that is part of a rhetorical move that works really well within Spanish politics to denounce corruption or to de denounce, denounce anything that is not functioning properly. So when it comes to corruption, for example, it's true that in Spain, it has been a, that corruption has been a problem. And it's also true that corrupt politicians have often failed to take responsibility or, or to be held accountable for their corruption. And the common argument is then to hear, well, in Germany, a politician like this would have been kicked out or would have, would have resigned long ago. When it comes to the remnants in public space of Francoism, a statue of Franco, for example, uh, or the Valley of the Fallen, people say, like, can you imagine a monument, a great, massive grave monument to Adolf Hitler in Berlin today? That's unthinkable. So to contrast this to the rest of Europe is a powerful tool to point to particular features of Spanish society. Um, but the argument I'm trying to make is that overusing that tool leads Spaniards to paint their own country as exaggeratedly deficient compared to other European countries and loses sight of the extent to which other countries face similar challenges. So it's true that my own country, the Netherlands, did not have a dictatorship in the 20th century. But we too struggle with coming to terms with our own past, like our, our colonial past, our role in the slave trade, or our bloody oppression of uh, Indonesian independence in after World War II. So there's other ways in which other countries, the United States has its own struggles with its, its history. So I think overemphasizing Spain's difference is a lost opportunity to, to even to learn from each other, for Spain to teach other countries, or to come up with, with combined efforts to deal with these important challenges. I, th I think that's something that kind of jumped out at, at me too, reading your book that um, so many of the people you interviewed did make that comparison with, with Germany as if it was sort of a model of like this is the perfect way to to do it, but that okay. but that in fact you know there you're never going to there's never an endpoint in the sort of reconciliation process and, and and some of these debates are ongoing in Germany too. Yeah. So the the first critique is um, blaming everything on Franco misses the extent to which Spain today is subject to global movement global phenomena that have impacts elsewhere as well. The second point of criticism is that among the Spanish left, blaming everything on Francoism and associating the Spanish right with Francoism has been a very, again, a very powerful rhetorical tool. It's literally the breaking off that pact of silence, right? Where the past was not going to be mobilized politically. Now the past is mobilized politically by the left, often very effectively. But some people that I interviewed say, if you really want to talk about legacies of Francoism, cultural legacies of Francoism, many of them affect the left as much as the right. It's, it's not really, the left cannot really point to the 
to the right and say, see, you guys embody legacies of Francoism. Because when you, when you think about the way that political power operates, the way that, that political parties operate internally, um, the way that corruption or, or that um, clientelist networks determine many uh, political decisions or, or, or power relations or, or incorporations and expulsions of particular, particular, particular groups, many of those practices, if you, you can think of them as sociological remnants of Francoism, they're equally present among some of the left as among the right. So there's the cultural legacies of Francoism, um, those affect a much broader segment of Spanish society. Yeah, and the, and the other thing I just wanted to mention is that sometimes it, it jumps out as me as well, living in Turkey and uh, go to Spain and, um, you know, even just things like the fact that you are able to go out and protest these things, or if you have a, a, an objection, you can write about it on online or wherever you want to, that, um, you know, these are the big steps that have been made uh, since the transition and that um, there are a lot of other countries that, that haven't made those, uh, yeah. haven't made those oh, no, and, and, and it's important to underscore how much Spain has changed. Just, just like you said, in terms of political freedoms, in terms of, of uh, religiosity, I mean, the secularization mm, uh, of Spain uh, has been yeah. in, insane. When you think about it, at the, the time in, in such a short time, uh, women's rights, gay rights, um, uh, same-sex marriage. Um, there's all kinds of ways in which Spain is, is really unrecognizable, mm -hmm. um, of course. At the same time, I would say that moments where the testimony, the, the witness testimony of a single police officer without further corroborating evidence is upheld in a court versus person who's accused, the, at those moments, you see kind of the the lack of, of democratic freedoms or, the, or the, the, the ways in which democratic freedoms still need work in Spain. So the relative power of the courts, the relative power of the forces of order, of, of the Guardia Civil, the national police, it's true that the, the most restrictive current laws is currently on the books, which restricts expressions of dissent in public spaces, including demonstrations, mm -hmm. was passed quite recently by the, when the Partido Popular, the so-called gag law, the Le Mordaza, right? It's a, so that's not Frankwist. That's just there's a recent law that was, was meant to limit uh, civic discontent, right? And to give mm -hmm. more power to the police through heavy fines and, and, and all those things. But, but things like the idea that hate speech, laws against hate speech are wielded in courts of law to defend the police from criticism I think that, I mean, hate speech is meant to protect vulnerable communities. The police is never a vulnerable community in, mm -hmm. a, in a democratic society, right? So those kinds of sort of, sort of skewed views continue to point to the fact that um, despite all its very obvious uh, civil liberties um, in Spain, there's a fair amount of work to be done still. The same is true for things like the fact that criticizing the royal family is punishable in any situation, even when you say something that's true about the king, but that might tarnish his image, that is punishable also in a court of So there's things like that, right? Where, where, where sort of the, 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 the weight of, of tradition continues to curb um, freedoms of expression, for example. 
Right. Yeah. Sometimes it pops up in ways you don't expect. I, I've experienced it just a very small amount do, doing research on the police forces in Spain and and a lot of the materials you're just not allowed access to that, that exactly. you could be in, in other countries. Yeah, but, no, and, and access, access to archives has been a huge mm -hmm. problem, which in part a result of lack of funding, but also part of, of willful obstruction um, that, that researchers are not, I mean, research is one thing, let alone citizens, right? So, but even re, even like credentialed researchers cannot get access. Um, and, and that is um, even the law, the new law, of state secrets doesn't fully address the problem adequately. Yeah, so that um, brings me to my last question because uh, you know, I wanted to kind of ask you about your own take about um, you know how much kind of Francoism remains in Spain. I think you've already uh, spoken to that to some extent, um, and you mentioned not to kind of overemphasize that so that we can identify what's new. But I'm also interested in you know, what you think in terms of what Spain can kind of do going forward. Um, we've talked about this new law of democratic memory and, and what some of the weaknesses of it are and how there are, there are certain things, you know, such as the repeal of the amnesty law that are, are perhaps non-starters given the current political situation. But, but is that kind of true overall that um, Spain is kind of going gone as far as it can at this moment? Or do, do you think there are other steps uh, that can be taken? I don't know. I think if further change depends on political leadership, something's got to happen in the Partido Popular. A, a new leader was, was just elected to the Partido Popular, mm -hmm. Feijo, who's a longtime president of the autonomous community of Galicia, who's now come up to lead the Partido Popular um, nationally. And he has shown no sign at all of changing his attitude, changing the Pepe's attitude when it comes to these kind of like nationwide challenges. And I think the kinds of changes that we're looking for cannot happen unilaterally. It cannot happen only from one side of the political spectrum. That there's got to be some kind of agreement, a broader agreement. So I think if it depends on political leadership. I think there's little hope for change. Then you can say, well, how about then grassroots mobilization? That was really the, the bet, the wager of the, the 15M movement, the 15M, and then of Podemos, the party that kind of came out of that, or at least that claimed mantle of the 15M. 15M was in 2011, and Podemos were founded in 2014, three years later. It's kind mm -hmm. of the, in the same way that in the US, the Occupy movement did not translate into a political party in Spain. Eventually, it kind of did. Um, but the wager of Podemos was that political renewal can happen and will happen uh, bottom up, not top down. That wager was lost. Um, so, so Podemos did not succeed in doing that, in part because of, of the pressures of the political moment, a whole series of elections that sort of forced the party or tempted the party into top-down tactics despite its own bottom-up promises. But you could also say that um, the sort of those, those broader symptoms of Spanish political culture, um, undemocratic Spanish political culture, and ended up affecting Podemos as well, right? So, but as a result, the energy available among 
politically minded citizens to try again is very little. I think there's a lot of disenchantment, a lot of fatigue. COVID hasn't helped, um, but there's a lot. I notice among the people that I talk to, a, a, a kind of, in political terms, the same thing we see post-COVID elsewhere, which is kind of the need to focus on themselves, their families, their immediate surroundings, um, with no spare energy to dedicate to to the common good, to public life, right? So mobilizing people politically, getting them to organize is, is a real challenge. Um, mm-hmm. People are so tired. And the in part because of the continued power of, of media that had a strong interest in painting the new left as dysfunctional and self-interested, the view of politics in Spain at this point is, is uh, I think, overall very negative. So I don't see anything coming much from political leadership, but in the short term, also really not of civil, civic mobilization. I think the one, if there's one kind of point of, of renewal or of energy, I would say it's in the media, if, if anywhere. So I think there are, what you do see, it's true that the traditional media uh, the traditional corporate media continues to be extremely powerful, especially in television and radio. Mm-hmm. And that television and radio in Spain today continue to be extremely influential media, much more than the written media. But that said, the written media and the alternative written media, I think, are a space in which interesting debates happen, uh, thinking happens, initiatives are developed, ideas are proposed. So I think they're laying the basis kind of the, the 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 ground they're laying the groundwork for potential new political projects to emerge when people find some more energy again kind of when 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 the current burnt out and burnt up political leadership who are currently in their 40s sort of like make way and and newer people come up and i think that uh, yolanda diaz the, the second vice prime minister who is currently exploring the idea of a new political movement on the left to take the place of Podemos. It's not clear that she'll be able to do that, in part because of all these factors that I mentioned. But I think the, the what, what, you, what you see happening in the written media in terms of people thinking new things, proposing new things, I think if that can be mobilized in addition to this new political movement, I think then, then change can happen. Glad uh, we didn't have to leave on a on a completely depressing note, <laughs> but um, I want to thank you so much, uh, Sebastian, for coming on the program and having this really fascinating discussion. When we're able to link history with um, what's happening in the world today, I think that those are always some of my favorites. So, uh, so thank you. My pleasure. Uh, thank you, Foster. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.